And as they make their way to continue in worship, let us continue in prayer. God who stirs us to great alleluias and to wrenching prayers of grief, who meets us on the mountaintops and in the valleys of our lives, meet us here this morning. Remind us that when two or three are gathered, when our beloved community gathers for worship, you are here. Help us to hear your word this morning so that we may go and share that word of transformation with the hurting world. For it is in the name of love made flesh, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Upon arrival at the Wake Forest University School of Divinity, all new students are required to take a first semester course entitled The Art of Ministry. Our professor is a scholar of worship and leadership and liturgy, a tall, lithe Presbyterian minister with a shock of white hair, an extensive vocabulary, and a thick as molasses southern accent. In our first class, Dr. Jill Cranshaw circled the room, her well-worn turquoise cowboy boots clacking across the tile floor, and invited our room of unsure and untested minister types to live in the tension and lean into the ambiguity. For the entire semester, and in nearly every interaction with Jill for the remainder of Divinity School, every lesson and every ministerial situation was an invitation to live in the tension and to lean into the ambiguity. Feeling stressed about your midterm and having boy troubles? Live in the tension. Have no idea what to do with the rest of your life? Lean into the ambiguity. You see, for Jill, this invitation was as central to the Christian experience as anything. For her and for every student thereafter that she encountered, these places of tension and ambiguity were everywhere all the time, in countless situations. And that's where you found God. And that's where God found you. And that's where you found each other. Live in the tension and lean into the ambiguity. Full of moments of delicious tension and ambiguity, our text today opens with a summit as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. Fresh on the heels of a series of actions described in the Gospel of Luke that articulate Jesus' identity and mission, the sending of the twelve disciples, the feeding of the five thousand, Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus' first foretelling of his death and resurrection— We see these four on the mountaintop. The Greek here doesn't identify which mountain, just that it was the mountaintop. And to Luke's early readers and compilers, the resounding echoes of Moses ascending Mount Sinai must have rung loudly in their collective memories. That mountaintop encounter with God... Uh, marked change in appearance, evidence of the Lord contained in the elements of nature, conversation about a departure or an exodus, 
and the Lord speaking. Yes, this particular climb had all the markings of a divine supernatural encounter, one that bore the unmistakable promise that God would indeed show up. For in in the midst of prayer, God did show up. Jesus blazed as bright and fiery as light itself. And from the annals of history arrive Moses and Elijah, all three alive with the glory of God and discussing the end of Jesus' earthly journey. The bringer of the law, the prophet, and the Messiah, or as Barbara Brown Taylor likes to say, the Mount Rushmore of heaven all bearing physical manifestations of their divine encounters with God. The lesson here would have been unmistakable. Moses was the one who set God's people free. Elijah was the prophet whose reappearance certainly indicated the coming of the Messiah. Both standing with Jesus, whose prophetic life and ministry was to release the captives and to set the oppressed free. There should be no doubt now. Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And to make sure that this was clear, God even recalls those words used at Jesus' baptism, saying, this is my son, the chosen one, the beloved. Don't overlook this moment. Listen to him. Heavy with sleep, the three disciples could hardly believe their eyes. Can you even imagine what a life-altering vision they must have seen? It it makes me sympathize with Peter, bless his heart, who wanted to capture this lightning-in-a-bottle moment, the epic moment that would never again be matched. Mumbling his affirmations and imploring Jesus for a chance to, to pitch a tent for each of these three men, Peter longs to concretize and incarnate this ambiguous yet sublime mountaintop encounter with God. Dazzling light morphs into a plume of cloudy smoke, obscuring and terrifying these disciples who suddenly found themselves alone with Jesus. In that moment, with smoke burning in their eyes and the words of God ringing in their ears, Peter, James, and John discovered what countless heroes of Israelite history knew well, that an encounter with God is a chaotic full-bodied experience. Remember Jacob limping by the river Jabbok or Abraham and Isaac struggling bound at the sacrificial altar? Moses trembling on holy ground at the burning bush and Isaiah who was called to a prophetic life in the quakes of a temple. Our biblical witness proclaims that encounters with God happen often in multi-sensory ways sometimes in the midst of chaos, but always forever changing those in its wake. The great 20th century preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick once described how we as humans encounter God, God's glory as being like a man standing on the beach at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. He said, this little portion of the coastline and the ocean that touches it, I know, This is real. But beyond it are incalculable miles of shoreline and ocean which I can never know intimately and about which I can only surmise. These two things I know about the ocean and about God. This portion which touches me is real. 
beyond it is far, far more than I can ever know. This near edge of God is where we but graze the hem of God's garment, allowing us to frolic in the immediate mystery of God's glory. In these mountaintop moments, when we experience and encounter God, the veil between this world and the next flutters open just wide enough to reveal the edge of God's glory in ways that we can hardly fathom. In his final and fateful sermon on April 3, 1968, Dr. King talked about these mountaintop moments. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. These moments on the mountaintop help us to see the promised land. They are those thin spaces That chilly early morning run over the river where you watch the sun blossom over the horizon and marvel at the mystery of creation. Or hours spent in conversation with your soul friends where your anxieties and griefs and struggles seem to suspend in time if just but a few hours. That moment when your firstborn enters the world in a mere second completely reorienting your life. That night you decided to get sober. The last hour of your beloved's life, those moments that reshape our worldviews, be it your first trip overseas or that class in college that expanded your knowledge, the unexpected relationship that formed outside your homogenous realm, or the hour spent among the poor that helped you to realize just how privileged you really are. These full-bodied God moments transfigure us and make us alive, filling our dehydrated souls with living water and enabling us to realize the sheer glory of the God who has created, sustained, and redeemed us. And still, all of creation still dreams for you and for you and for you and for you and for me. In these moments, we are brought ever closer to wholeness and reconciliation. And the kingdom of God becomes, moves from an ambiguous idea to something that is made real, near and at hand. And quite frankly, we want to pitch a tent and stay put too. It's no wonder that Peter wanted to capture and house this moment at the edge of glory. Peter did what any of us would. He tried to explain the unexplainable or contain the infinite, make sense of the unbelievable. This sounds like us, don't you think? We too try to anchor these mountaintop moments and familiarize them. Not a bad thing in and of itself, but a spirit that can lead to the sentimentalization 
of our experiences. And I reason to guess that we have felt that right here inside our walls. I'm not sure if you've checked your calendar, but next Sunday is February 17, which I hope triggers in your mind something you've heard once or probably a hundred times around here. After two and a half years of taking the spark of an idea, adding another Sunday morning worship service and another Bible study hour to make space for all who are seeking to find God here at Highland, We are visioning, we have visioned and planned and stressed and organized and staffed and reorganized and stressed some more and conversed and communicated about this vision together as a congregation. And we launch our new Sunday schedule next week. Over the last two and a half years, from every type of voice in our community of faith, we have felt like Peter. So many of us have regular kingdom of God moments right here in our midst And we want to hold on to them, to house them, to give them roots so that we can rest there for a while. Whether it's our favorite Sunday morning rhythms or the feeling of our hour of worship or our Bible study class or simply having space in our frenetic lives to pause for a moment with our beloved community and reorient ourselves towards God. We all have a sense of loss as we leave these known mountaintop moments and encounters with God and enter into the unknown. Because who knows what awaits us as individuals and as a congregation beyond our mountain. The gremlins of the unknown whisper all the awful possibilities in our ears. In the context of our new Sunday schedule, we fret. No one will show up. Our community will be fractured. Everyone will be exhausted. This whole experience and experiment will fail. It's not often that most of our ministry staff is reading the same book at the same time, unless you count our gripping forays into teen fiction. Okay, yes, at my urging. Um, But now several of us are in the midst of Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. How the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead. And as a side note, put it on your reading list if you haven't already. In it, she too recognizes the scary place of moving away from the mountain into the unknown. She helps us see that the fear of scarcity, of never having or being enough, punctuates our days. We live in a world of never being enough. Never being good enough or safe enough or thin enough or successful enough or powerful enough. And this spirit of scarcity governs our culture and unless we dare greatly can infiltrate our very existence. She pulls the title of the book from Teddy Roosevelt's speech delivered in Paris, France on April 23, 2010. He said, It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds 
who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Daring greatly mandates vulnerability, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Vulnerability is terrifying, unsettling, and disruptive, and yet vulnerability is the very action that begets courage and trust. It is the ability to step off the mountain into the unknown with the knowledge that God will not leave us behind, that God has already met us there, that the edge of God's glory is found as fully in the valleys as on the mountaintops. And so, in contrary to Peter's deep desires, his full-bodied encounter with God is not meant to last into perpetuity. Mountains must be descended. The long slog towards Jerusalem must commence. In the valley, wait an immense crowd and a family with the threat of life and the disconnection from community hanging in the balance. And they need Jesus Jesus who meets them and who meets us in the septic processes of living. Jesus who makes God known in dangerously intimate ways. Jesus whose exodus Moses and Elijah discussed and led him to Jerusalem to a criminal's death. Alone, abandoned by God, and utterly lacking of the transfigured and dazzling glory shown on the mountaintop. It makes sense, then, that in the transfiguration account in the other Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus instructs the disciples to not speak of this curious mountaintop event until after his death and resurrection. Fred Craddock reminds us that, after all, someone running around telling a lot of dazzling miracle stories who has never been to the cross can grossly misinterpret what Jesus is all about. And it is here that we find the very meaning of Transfiguration Sunday. For today, we are stuck in a doorway. We're suspended in the tension between epiphany and Lent. We're in that liminal space between darkness and light, between praise and lament, between Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and his grief in the garden, between the mountain and the valley, between the solitude and in the crowd, between life and death. Transfiguration Sunday positions us firmly in the threshold, vulnerably right at the edge of God's glory, And it looks like brilliant light and fire on the mountain and like a father frantic for his sickly son in the valley. And so, too, with the liminal spaces in our own lives, those space in between places, we we feel this. The period of being engaged or being between jobs, the anguished times with one foot in the closet and one foot out, the many months of living and dying with a terminal disease, Liminal times in our lives bring us great joy and great sorrow. They disorient us with their ambiguity and leave us feeling displaced for the time being. We take comfort that our biblical tradition speaks of these times of liminality. The 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites, 
who were stuck between Egypt and the promised land. The 40 days of Noah's flood in between the life they once had and the life that is to come. The devastating years of the Babylonian exile, of which Isaiah captures so vividly in his call narrative. And none more liminal than those three dark days between crucifixion and resurrection. When the incarnate one seemed to linger on that cross, searing the image of God crucified into the memories of all who stood at Golgotha and all who have since come after. In these liminal spaces, we are exposed and vulnerable. God seems at once so close and yet so far away. But it is here. It is here in these doorways and thresholds of our lives, on the edge of God's glory between the dazzling vision on the mountaintops and the sufferings in the valley, that we hear the voice of the Lord instructing us to listen, to listen, to listen to Jesus, to listen to the promise that from every wilderness a path is prepared, in the desert a highway is made straight, that every valley should be lifted up and every mountain be made low, that uneven ground become level and the rough places be made plain. To listen to his promise of release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, unbinding of the oppressed and exalting of the poor. To listen to his promise of peace and reconciliation in a world of hatred littered with weapons and discord. To listen to his promise to take care of us like he cares for the lily of the valley and the sparrows in the air. To listen to his promise of meaning and love-filled purpose to our rational, educated, questioning, 21st century, digitally directed, change-averse lives who wonder why our lives feel world-weary and raw, to listen to his promise that the edge of glory is found in that tension and ambiguity between the liminal spaces of God moments and deep sufferings, to listen to the promise that God will always be with us in the thin spaces, in the times we want to cling to that mountaintop tent, the times we feel racked with demons in the valley to listen to the promise made on that old rugged cross on a dark Friday afternoon, that he knows our suffering, that he suffers with us, that he feels our abandonment and bears our griefs, and to listen to the promise that Sunday's resurrection will come, that a seed of hope and calling will be planted, that a shoot will grow out from a holy stump, and that branches will spring forth from the roots that in him we are transformed by love and have great boldness. And in that boldness we find hope. I have a magical Aunt Susan, and she introduced me to a saying that I want to close with tonight. I have it written on a, a, a document hanging in my office. And my hope is that as we move from the pillars of smoke from Transfiguration Sunday to the ashes of Wednesday, that you may listen for the transfigured Jesus and stand on the edge of glory in the brilliance of the mountaintop and in the realities of the valley. In the 5th century, Abba Lot went to see Abba Joseph and said, Abba, as much as I am able... I practice a small rule. 
all the little fasts, some prayer and meditation, and remain quiet. As much as possible, I keep my thoughts clean. What else should I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched out his hands to heaven. And then his fingers became like torches of flame. And he said, why not be turned into fire? May it be so. Amen. This community of faith is far from perfect, but we're seeking to live vulnerably, fully, present at the edge of God's glory together. You are invited, all are invited, to join your lives with this particular community as we travel life's journey together. If God is calling you to align your lives with our community or to become a follower of Jesus who listens to those promises, I will be standing at the front to receive you as we stand and sing.